Well, good evening, friends. Please turn in your Bible to the book of Revelation. And this is our second week in this new series, looking at the letters to the churches in Revelation. And so tonight we come to the first letter, which is to the church in Ephesus. So we're going to read this letter, verses 1 to 7 of chapter 2 of Revelation. So listen, this is God's word. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Amen. May God bless to us the reading of his word. Well, at my previous church in Belfast, one Sunday, a few years before I was ministering there, they had a mystery worshipper. He left, and no one knew his purpose for why he was at the church service. It would only be later that they would find out what his agenda was. He was part of a website called shipoffools.com, and they would send people around to different churches, whether it's Catholic, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, the whole spectrum. And then these people would write a critique of the church and its worship services, and that critique would be posted on their website. And they answer a variety of questions. Uh, what was the opening words of the service? Was your pew comfortable? How was the coffee? What did you find distracting? And on that question of what did you find distracting, his answer regarding my previous church is quite funny. He writes, very little distraction in a church like this. It was the least distracting church I have ever attended. But on the whole, his assessment was fair and kind, describing this church as one for serious Christians. It was actually very helpful to get an outsider's perspective. Well, today in the passage, we see another mystery worshiper, one who goes around the seven churches of Asia. He then sends a letter, which would include an analysis of how the church is doing spiritually. It would often include commendations, though not always, and there would be a challenge or a rebuke, and then there would be an encouragement in the form of a promise. And these letters are ones that we are to learn from. For while they were written to individual churches, they were written to the universal church in every age, in every location. These letters are applicable to us. 
Uh, today we come to the first letter. It's to the church in Ephesus. And so I want you to notice that you are to be orthodox, but do not lose your love for Christ, for he has loved you and he has given you life. And children, if you can, please draw a picture for me, a picture of the tree of life that we read here in this passage. That's promised to those who love Christ. So firstly, listen to Christ, for he knows you. Verse 1. Listen to Christ, for he knows you. While my church in Belfast never found out the identity of their mystery worshiper, the mystery worshiper to Ephesus, we do know who he is. It is Jesus Christ. And last week, in introductory sermon, we considered who Jesus is, that he is glorious. And we read of this majestic description of him as the Son of Man, similar to what we read in Daniel's prophecy. And we see again in this letter the glory of Christ in verse 1. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. And that speaks of his might and his power. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. They are the ones who would receive these letters. Now there is debate, as I mentioned last week, as to who they are. Is it literal angels who are guardians of the churches? Or is it human messengers who were pastors of these churches? We're not sure, but we do know they are in God's right hand. And that shows us the power of Christ over his church. Christ said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Christ is the king of the church, and because of his authority, the church will not be let go. It will not be forsaken. The church is secure in Christ's hands. But then we also noticed last week that Jesus is near, and we see that again in verse 1. He walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And the lampstands, remember, are the church. He is near to his church. So Jesus doesn't simply send a critique and has no intention of helping out like the mystery worshiper from the website. No, Jesus Christ is here to help the church. So not only does Christ give this helpful critique of the church, he wants to help the church shine bright in the darkness of this world. And Jesus is the one to do it. For he writes in the beginning of verse 2, I know. Jesus knows everything. He knew everything about the church in Ephesus. This mystery worshiper in Belfast had a very limited understanding and knowledge of my previous church. And he came with his own bias. He even admits to that when in the report he says, As an Anglican steeped in liturgy, I find it a challenge not to have instrumental music or liturgy. Well, Christ is not bringing his own bias, for this is his church. He is king. And so he has the say as to how it should function. And he comes knowing everything about the church in Ephesus. Nothing escapes his attention. He does not speak of the church in Ephesus from ignorance. No, he knows what's going on. He knows the church in Ephesus is in the setting of the city of Ephesus. And the city of Ephesus was a large Roman city, capital city of the Roman province of Asia Minor, a major port city, and so it was important in trade and commerce. It was a tourist city. Many pilgrims came to the city of Ephesus to worship at its many temples. 
And Ephesus is most famous for its temple to Artemis or to Diana, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But there are also temples in Ephesus to the Roman emperors. Remember how the Romans, they would use this religion as a way to unite its expanding empire that was becoming increasingly diverse. If everyone would worship the emperor, well, that would create a loyalty to the empire. And so Ephesus had a temple to Julius Caesar. It had a temple to Caesar Augustus. And this city would then employ thousands of priests and priestesses. And so you can imagine the prosperity that these temples would bring to this city. So Jesus doesn't just know Ephesus. He also knows our church. And he knows the city of Bloomington. He knows and understands what it's like for you living and working in this city. And so you are to heed this report. For Christ is speaking to you too. Well, secondly, Christ commends you for your orthodoxy. Verses 2 and 3 and verse 6. So like any good report, it begins with the positive. And for those at Ephesus, it's that of orthodoxy. This is a church that if you were to look in from the outside, you would be impressed. And Christ is impressed. He writes, I know their works, their labor, their patience. This was a church that knew God's word and obeyed God's word. They put it into practice. You can imagine it being a busy church. The lonely are being visited. The sick are being treated. The widows are being provided for. There's hospitality for the stranger. There is teaching for the young people from the Bible. It's a church that's persevering. The ESV puts it, they have a patient endurance. And so in this pagan city of Ephesus, they were willing to make a stand. They did not show patience with those who practice evil, we read. And we get a glimpse of this in the book of Acts. In Acts 19, we read of Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus and how it had a huge impact on people's lives. Acts 19, verse 18, And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The influence of Christianity was having a, an effect on those who were selling silver images of the goddess Diana. It was putting them out of business. And we read of that. Uh, these um, silversmiths, they saw Christianity as a threat. And they wanted the Christians, Paul in particular, to be stopped, to be imprisoned. And so they spoke out against them. They caused a riot to get them into trouble. But the church in Ephesus, it did not break. Even in the face of this opposition, they kept going. Even though they could not be involved in what would have been the biggest thing that was going on in the city at that time, that of pagan worship, whether to Artemis or whether to the emperor. It would be like Team USA, whether at the Olympics or the World Cup, taking some evil position on something, and so you could not stand with them. And it would result in you not being able to support the team, and you'd be going against the rest of your fellow citizens who are faithfully supporting them. It would be confusing. It would be even offensive. And that was what it was like for the church in Ephesus, and it resulted in them being persecuted. They lost their businesses. No one would frequent their shops or use their services. It split friendships. It broke up families. 
husbands of believing wives would walk out or vice versa. There were threats against them. There was violence. And yet we read of perseverance. This is a church that's willing to hold on, to keep going, no matter what the difficulty is. Doesn't even grow weary, so determined to do the right thing. And it's not just pressure from outside. We also read there's pressure from inside the church. We read of false apostles, men who came into the church pretending to be someone that they are not, men who offered new insights, new knowledge, and yet the church in Ephesus, they saw it as a false doctrine. And we read that they tested them and that they knew them to be liars. And so the church in Ephesus, they had a zero policy, tolerance policy to false doctrine. They were very discerning. And so they had a clear understanding of theology. They were well taught. And that's not difficult when we know who their preachers were. In my home church in Ballyclaver, around the walls of the session room, there are photographs of the previous ministers. And there are only three photographs. That's not because Ballyclaver is a young church, but it's because each minister had an abnormally long pastorate. Well, around the walls of the session room in Ephesus, uh, there would be also three pictures, or at least three pictures. There was a picture of the Apostle Paul. Paul, we can read in Acts, he spent two years in Ephesus teaching in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And during his time, the word of the Lord spread widely and it grew in power. And the next photograph would be that of Timothy. And we can read of Paul telling Timothy in the opening chapter of 1 Timothy to command certain men not to preach false doctrines. Another photograph would be that of the apostle John, the writer of Revelation, who had been exiled to the island of Patmos. He also preached in Ephesus. And so this church was blessed with good teaching, and it shows church in Ephesus was an orthodox church. And later we read in verse 6 of their hatred of the practice of the Nicolaitans. Who are the Nicolaitans? Well, that's a good question. We can't be sure. And there are a variety of views out there. Very simply, they are a group of heretics, and Christ hates their practices. They were immoral, impure. They sought to teach others. Christ was favorable toward the Ephesians in that they also hated the Nicolaitans' practices. And so Christ is commending this church of Ephesus for their orthodoxy, for persevering, for working hard. And I believe that commendation is one that we at Bloomington can take on board. You're also a hard-working church. There's much going on in this church, and there's a lot going on in this church that we don't know about. You're serving ways that are not always seen by the rest of us. But you are seen by Christ. And he takes note of your labors. He knows your deeds, just like the Ephesians. And so take encouragement from that. This is also a church that's seeking to be orthodox. You believe in the Bible. You seek to have the Bible applied to your life. And there's a hunger for God's word here. That's very evident in the number of people here at the evening service. But you are faithful in morning and evening worship, to Sunday school, to Bible studies. You want God's word. Many churches instead are going down the road of entertaining people. But your focus is on what does God want? What does the Bible tell us? 
And by always reverting to the Bible, you are remaining orthodox in your views. You're a church that knows how to persevere and labor for Jesus' name's sake. In days when numbers were much smaller, when you were a smaller church, there were many discouragements, maybe more discouragements than encouragements. But you as a church, you continued to faithfully worship God here. You did not grow weary. You did not stop praying. And you continue to persevere in a city where Christianity is continually marginalized. And so as the Ephesus church was commanded, you also at Bloomington are to be commanded. Well, thirdly, heed the rebuke. Do not forsake your first love. So yes, Ephesus is an orthodox church, but its orthodoxy is hollow. Christ writes, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Ephesus appears to be a model church, but it lacks one thing. Their love had grown cold. They are willing to do what is required of them, but their hearts are no longer in it. It had become routine. If you were to ask the Ephesians what brought them to church, they would struggle to know how to reply to that question. Probably say, well, this is what I do every week. This is what my parents do. This is what my friends do. They become an organization of people coming together weekly because they have this similar interest in God. But they had forgotten that they are a lampstand in the middle of the city of Ephesus. Their function was to bring glory to God. They were to hold forth the light of the gospel in Ephesus. And the gospel means good news. News that's life-changing. News that isn't something that's simply nice, but news that is massive. It's like the end of a war. That is what the good news of the gospel is. They loved Christ for that, and they loved others because they wanted them to also know the good news. That was how the church in Ephesus grew. People saw the Ephesians, and they saw the light that shone from them. They were so on fire for Christ and for spreading the good news that many people were challenged. The church in Ephesus was excited by missions, excited to hear about the gospel advancing throughout the world, excited to hear about people being saved. They prayed about it. They supported it. They sent money. They sent people all in an effort to tell others of the gospel. And In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he describes how some of the Ephesians Love Christ with an undying love. Ephesians 6.24 Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. But 30 years later, the church in Ephesus had changed. The next generation's love for Christ's glory had weakened. Over time, the fire had died down. The enthusiasm had waned. No longer were they excited about missions. No longer were they keen to support Christ's name being proclaimed to all the people. Their love for Christ had cooled down. And so their love for others had also cooled down. So this once roaring fire had become a small flame that emitted little light. And we must question ourselves. Have we lost our first love? What's the reason for us being here this evening? Why are we a church? Why are we meeting here in the center of Bloomington? 
In the Gospel of Matthew, Christ prophesied about the end of the world, how there would be persecution, how there would be false prophets. In verse 12, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. This is a real danger every church has to face, our love for Christ growing cold. Church can become become a habit. It becomes a duty. You simply go through the motions without any enthusiasm, without any drive that comes from a love for Christ. So just consider that question. Have you lost your first love? Well, fourthly, remember again the love of Christ, our face being removed, verse 5. So Christ gives the Ephesians a remedy so they can restore that first love so they can be a witness once again. Verse 5, remember the height from which you have fallen. Maybe you need this remedy this evening. Maybe you have lost your first love. And the remedy is to remember. Remember the time when you were excited. Remember the enthusiasm that you once had. Remember when you were convicted over your sin, and yet you recognize in Christ there is forgiveness. Remember the time that you were amazed at God's grace and how God's grace transformed you. Remember the burden you once had for lost people to hear the gospel because you recognized that they are no more worthy than you are to receive the gospel. Remember the desire you once had to see God's name glorified across this world. And then Christ calls the Ephesians to repent and do the thing you did at first. Repentance always leads to action. It's turning in a new direction. And so you too must repent. Acknowledge that the loss of love for Christ, your Savior, is wrong. It's sinful. And instead you're to learn to love again. Now, this would be hard if you see love as simply an emotion. Love is more than an emotion. It is a commitment. But it should not be a hard commitment. As if you see it, and if you do see it in that way, then clearly you have not understood the privilege of the gospel and of Christ's love for you. Brooks writes, he calls his church to fall in love with him all over again. Well, you too. You're to fall in love with Christ all over again. And this is a process you will repeat many times in your Christian life. But Christ also gives the Ephesians a warning. If they do not repent, if they do not change, he will remove their lampstand. He will remove their burning light. No longer will they be a witness in this world. And throughout our country, there are many churches that have closed. No longer are their lights burning brightly. Instead, their buildings have been converted into offices, or restaurants, or even homes. Sadder still are the churches that have their lampstand removed, but still continue. Churches where the gospel is not even present. If there is no love for Christ, well then there is no light. The church is in darkness. They're simply a group of people who enjoy meeting together. Well, Christ will judge churches that have lost their first love. And if they don't repent, he will remove 
their lampstand from their presence. And he will judge us in the same way. If we lose our love for Christ, if we no longer desire to see his name glorified, if we no longer recognize that it is his gospel that this lost world needs to hear, then he will remove the lampstand. Our light will be put out. And it's a warning, and yet I believe we can be encouraged here in our church. There is a desire to see people saved. Frequently in our prayer meeting, we are praying for people to know the love of Christ. We're active in reaching out to our community. In our day-to-day contacts, we are seeking to tell people the good news of Christ. And so clearly there is a love for Christ. And yet you must never sit back. Christ is to be our first love. Nothing else is to come before that. And so our love for Christ is to be foremost in our lives. So that's a challenge. How will you demonstrate your love for Christ this coming week? Will you speak to your neighbor and befriend them? Will you come to the prayer meeting and pray for those who are not saved? Will you help out or support what's happening here at the church? Will you be bold this week and tell a family member their need of the love of Christ in their lives? These are not easy things. But when our first love is for Christ, well, these will not be difficult tasks to fulfill. So this is our purpose as a church. This is our reason for being. We aren't here because we simply enjoy each other's company or of similar interest. No, we're here to proclaim the gospel. Our first love is for Christ and to see his kingdom expanded in this city and in each other's hearts. Well, fifthly, Christ gives you the promise of life. So in verse 7, Christ gives you the promise of life. So Christ ends this letter to the Ephesus with a promise. He begins verse 7 saying, He who has an ear, let him hear. Meaning, some in the church will respond to his report. There are others who will not. There will be some who will be thinking, What's he talking about? There will be those who will only be offended by this letter, not willing to receive this helpful criticism. While others will hear Christ's report, and they will put it into practice. They will overcome their lack of enthusiasm and regain their first love. And the promise that Christ gives is the offer of eternal life. And he uses the picture of the tree of life. And the tree of life is found at the beginning of the Bible, back in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, their access to this tree of life was removed. Adam and Eve, they were thrown out of the garden. They could not eat from the fruit of this tree. They could not enjoy the benefits of it. Their sin had created a barrier. Until it was dealt with, they would not taste eternal life. But Adam and Eve's sin was dealt with. Christ promised one who would crush the serpent and bring an end to sin and death. And so Jesus Christ would fulfill this promise. His death on the cross was him receiving the punishment for sin, removing the barrier of sin. The way has been made open to the tree of life. You can now enjoy paradise with God. And so our trust must be in Christ. It is through him that we have access to God in paradise. Brooks writes, it is a picture of the loveliness, delight, 
and intimacy which believers will have with the Savior in glory, a paradise far, far more glorious than the one Adam lost, and a fellowship far, far more wonderful and thrilling. And so when you have this goal of heaven in sight, doesn't this help encourage you in your love for Christ? And this isn't a goal that we are unsure of if we will attain or not. No, through Christ, it is promised to us. If you're trusting in Christ, if you love him and his glory, well, you can be assured of tasting the fruit of the tree of life. You can be assured of being with God in paradise, in a new Eden. And so this is the incentive that we are given. The opposite is also true. Not to trust Christ, not to love him, will mean you will not eat of the tree of life. You will not enjoy paradise with God. Instead, because of your sin, you will face judgment. And so the offer of the tree of life is here. And so take off it. When you trust in Christ, when you understand the danger that you are in, and yet also understand the great salvation that you have in Christ, well, this will light up your fire. This will rekindle your love for him. John writes in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. And so it's knowing his love that sparks a fire in our hearts. And it's that truth you are to shine out. Christ teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, when you light a lamp, you don't put it under a basket, but you put it on a lampstand so that it gives light to all who are in the room. Well, if you put your light under a basket, under your bed, or have you placed it on a stand that gives light to everyone in the room? So in your love for Christ, you are to shine out the gospel to those around us. So learn from the church of Ephesus, which had lost its first love. Yes, you are to be orthodox, but do not lose your love for Christ. For he loved you first, and he's given you life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for this letter to the church in Ephesus. Lord, we thank you that you know us. You know our situation here. You know our church. And isn't that challenging, Lord, that uh, you know everything about us? Uh, Lord, uh, you've called us to be orthodox. You've called us uh, to love you by loving your word. And we thank you, Lord, for the church here uh, that does love your word. It's evident in its hunger uh, to get more and more off your word. And Lord, we do ask for your forgiveness. If in the busyness of it all, if we have lost our first love for Christ, Lord, remind us of the work of Christ in our lives that we would repent of our cold hearts. Instead, Lord, that we would do the things we did at first, that we would be enthusiastic as we know our sin and are convicted by it, and yet we know in Christ we have been saved, that we would know and remember your grace and your ongoing grace each day. Lord, we um, are challenged by this, um, this call, this rebuke, that uh, you will remove the lampstand. And so, Lord, help us to remember that warning, but instead that we would embrace the incentive that you've given to us here, that we will taste the fruit of the tree of life 
that you have promised us eternal life. And so, Lord, that our love would grow as a result of knowing uh, your blessing in our life, the blessing of eternal life. And so I pray that be true for each one here. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, please turn your blue psalm book to Psalm 16d. Psalm 16d. And notice stanza 5, the last stanza. For you'll not abandon my soul to the grave. Your godly one you will preserve from decay. Life's past you will show me. Full joy is with you. Your right hand holds pleasure for me evermore. Well, this is speaking of Christ and his resurrection. uh, And through him, we have eternal life. Through him, we have pleasures evermore. So let us remember what we have in Christ so that we love him more in response. Let's stand and sing 16D.